0: You're listening to the Christchurch Toronto Podcast, a recording of the Sunday sermons from Christchurch Toronto. Christchurch Toronto is a new church in Toronto's East End that seeks to practice the ancient Christian faith today. We would love for you to join us in the future. But until then, please turn your attention to the scripture reading.
1: Matthew 14, 13 to 21. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, We only have five loaves here and two fish. And he said, Bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied, and they took up 12 baskets full of the broken pieces left over, and those who ate were about 5,000 men, besides women and children. This is the word of the Lord for our church, and it is given for our good. Thanks, Sam. Amen. Let me pray,
0: and let's spend uh, just the next couple of minutes reflecting on this wonderful passage, but first let's bow our heads and pray. Lord, we have set before us a quite impossible task through this book written long, long ago. We've now come humbly before you and we want to know you and know more of the ways in which you work in this world and yet ours is a day clouded with doubts and all kinds of reasons that make it very difficult to believe. And so we come asking for something of a similar miracle to what we read in the story. That our hungry souls, which don't even know our hunger, would be nourished and fed by Christ this morning. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, Well, in 1989, Stephen Covey writes this book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. I'm sure a handful of you have read it or at least know something of it. It sold something like 20 million copies. Um, But in that book, he coined a phrase, at least most people think he coined it, the idea of an abundance mindset versus scarcity mindset. I guess as most of you have heard something around this, an abundance mindset versus a scarcity mindset. Covey was trying to describe the habits of highly effective people, and he says that highly effective people are not sort of threatened by the success of others. They have this abundant mindset that there's enough to go around, and so they're stimulated by the success of others. And those who are ineffective people then, on to the contrary, do not like to see the success of others. They see life as a zero-sum game, and if someone else has a bigger piece of pie than them, that's less, you know, for them to take. And as far as I can tell, and according to the Freakonomics podcast I listened to on the subject, um, Covey was the first to kind of use these words, but he, he wrote them in like a business psychology way. It was very helpful to the business professional world, but it set off a whole series of academic research and pop psychology around the topic of scarcity thinking versus abundance thinking. And um, by and large, the theory that started just as Covey writing about effective people has now made big impacts into understanding uh, the ways in which generational poverty works, the ways in which education inequality sort of plays out, the sort of outcomes sort of change differently based on scarcity mindsets that students bring into the classroom. But this distinction between abundance mindset and scarcity mindset has also been blamed for excusing and dismissing greed and paving the way for inequality. I mean, my eyes are still a bit blurry from that prayer, but I highly doubt anyone right now is in Gaza, you know, sheltering with people, wondering what's going to happen next telling them that they just need to take on an abundance mindset, you know? This way of thinking is kind of (laughs) the privilege of the elite that actually have abundance, they think like abundance, and those who are destitute tend to take on something of a scarcity mindset. Now, why do I say this? Well, I want to reflect on what, what Christians think about abundance and scarcity, and the passage before us is actually, it's significant. It says that scarcity is very real, and scarcity will play a very real part of the story but it also says there's a type of abundance that maybe Covey is scratching at and maybe our world kind of is starting to see uh, that is offered in Jesus so this passage invites us to experience a certain kind of abundance that Jesus offers but it also tells us that if we're ever really going to know and experience the power of God's work in our life and experience Christ for who he is there's also a scarcity mindset that we have to be willing to embrace that we have to take upon ourselves. I hope to make this argument. So, here's what I want to look at this morning. I want to look at the scarcity and the abundance first of the crowds, then the scarcity and the abundance of the disciples, and then finally the scarcity and abundance that's found in Jesus. So, first, let's look at the scarcity and abundance of the crowds. Where do we see this? Well, this passage picks up right where we left off last week. Um, John the Baptist was just beheaded by Herod in this, this gruesome, horrible tale. His stepdaughter is dancing seductively for him in a dinner party. He makes a rash vow, kills John the Baptist, the head's on a platter, and Jesus catches wind of it. And most likely, Jesus is grieved. This is John the Baptist, his cousin. We don't often, sometimes we can think of Jesus purely as God and forget that he's completely a human being. And he's grieved. This is his cousin that he would have grown up with. And he travels. He wants to get away. He gets on a boat, paddles away. He needs some space. Verse 13 tells us that he ends up in a desolate place. Um, There's a bit of a play on words here if you're reading Greek. uh, The Greek word certainly means desolate, but it's the same word you would use for a desert. So Jesus goes essentially to the middle of nowhere. And word starts spreading that Jesus has disappeared. People are saying, where did Jesus go? And they said, well, he took a boat. He said he was heading that direction, to, to the desolate place. And so people actually, by foot, it seems, generally travel by water would be quicker than by foot, but they they run to meet Jesus on the other side of the shore whenever he arrives, and by the time he arrives, there's a large crowd. Eventually, the crowd will be 5,000 men, verse 21 tells us, to say nothing of the women and children, so well over 5,000 people there that, that have come to see him. And they've come because they have a certain scarcity, okay, They're willing to take what seems to be a very dangerous risk. I just don't think we can understand, unless you've spent time like deep in the, I mean, maybe camping in Algonquin, way way deep in the middle of nowhere. I don't think you can understand the danger that exists in this part of the world, sort of walking for long periods of time into an area where there's absolutely no resources, no water, the sun is scorching down on you. This is an area that is not suited for human life. It is, it is a place in which if you are there too long, you will certainly die, and people with family, with wife and kid and toads, fathers chase Jesus. They want to see him, and they go to this desolate place, and not only do they come just purely in desperation because they want to see Jesus, they take their kids who are sick, likely carrying them all the way into this remote and isolated place because they need to see Jesus. Why do they take a risk like this? Why are they willing to take a risk like this? Well, why is it that poor people are disproportionately more inclined to play the lottery? Because when you feel desperately in poverty, when you really know something of scarcity and you say, my nine to five will do nothing to get me out of poverty and life feels futile. Though you know there is almost no chance you will win the lottery, it seems like better chances than what you get in your nine to five. And so you take a ridiculous risk, you play the lottery. And what are we learning about the people who go to see Jesus in the middle of this desolate place? They are desperate. They are desperate with little food, little resources, they take all that they have and they run to meet Jesus. They think the risk is worth it. And the risk was worth it. Because trying to get Jesus' attention isn't like trying to pick the correct lotto numbers. The reports that they heard about Jesus, about his not only his ability to heal, but his willingness to heal, proved to be true. Because what does verse 13 say? It says Jesus sees, he has compassion and he heals. He's grieved. He just heard about a horrible death of his cousin. He knows that that death is likely to come to him, if not worse. He wants to get away. He's greeted by a mob. What does he do in the midst of his grief? You say, look, this was a time for self-care, you know? I just need a little me time. I'll get to you guys tomorrow. I need a day off. No. He sees. He has compassion and he heals. What does the crowd learn in this interaction, and what do we learn as we read this passage? That we will never know the abundance that exists in Jesus till we see our scarcity rightly. We'll never know the abundance of Jesus until we see our need rightly. Listen, Jesus is never, ever inconvenienced by the needy. He never was during his earthly ministry, and he isn't now. He's never inconvenienced by your needs your problems. He's never bothered. He sees. He has compassion. And this point in in, in the history of how he's working his salvation into the world, he is healing. When you have nothing to lose, what you will find is Jesus has everything to give. And the reason some of us here have not experienced the power of Jesus in our lives, haven't understood what it feels like to be liberated from this world that feels like it's enslaving us and shackling us, is when it comes down to it, we have too much to lose. We have too much to lose. We have too much abundance we don't want to get rid of in and of of ourselves. The only way to find the abundance of Jesus, and the crowds find it, is to realize the absolute scarcity that exists within your own resources, to come to the ends of yourself. When you find yourself there, you will find Jesus adequate, strong, abundant. So this is the scarcities that the crowd has, but also the abundance that they find in Jesus. They're desperate. They have no hope. They have no idea how their children are going to get healed, how they're going to move forward as a family unit. And in the midst of that desperation, that scarcity, they experience the abundance of Jesus, an abundance that I wish we all could experience afresh. But what about the scarcity the abundance of the disciples? Where do we see this? The disciples don't really need to be healed. Now, I'm going to try to humanize the story just a little bit, but in verse Fifteen. There's something of a a scene unfolding. It's going to evening. And I'm guessing there's a funny conversation with the disciples. Jesus has 5,000 people around. I imagine the disciples are having something of a sidebar conversation because no one really wants to see them. They want to see Jesus. They're seeing Jesus healing. They're seeing his compassion and him being overwhelmed with compassion. They're watching the crowd get bigger and bigger. This is the largest crowd Jesus has ever had. This is an incredible moment, but the disciples realize Who's going to tell the preacher he's got to wrap this thing up, you know? Um, We were getting into a tough situation. This sermon's going too long. It's time to move on. And people just keep coming and coming. And finally, I'm sure the disciples have a little conversation. Uh, Someone's got to tell Jesus that we don't have anywhere to get food for these people. Like, these are already desperate people coming out to be healed. And now they got to go back to to the the closest town or village to find food. Someone's going to get dehydrated. Someone's not going to make it. And I'm guessing the disciples sitting around one another say, who's going to have the conversation? Who's going to do it? You know, maybe they draw straws. I don't know. But one of them decides to go to Jesus and to confront him. Now, it's interesting. I mean, I've been trying to think about this all week. It's, It's interesting to me. They are watching Jesus heal everybody that brings a problem to him. Everybody, okay? And yet there's something about the human mind and the human heart that's worried about food. Something I can relate to. They're they're seeing seeing something incredible happening before them, but at the end of the day, they are concerned. Someone works up the courage. They go tell Jesus, hey, what's the plan here? What are we going to do with all these people? Jesus says, they don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. Now, it's interesting. The disciples happen to already know how much food is available when Jesus asks. There's only five loaves and two fish, Jesus. And actually... We may have already divided it 12 ways, you know? (laughs) We've already called who gets what. Uh, (laughs) Lord, there's not enough resources. There's barely enough for me, for you, and for your disciples to eat. Now, it's tempting to think, this is a cute story where Jesus just wants to show off his power, and we're getting a theology of the first church picnic. But there's a reason all four of the Gospels record this particular miracle. Because when else did we see God lead his people into a situation where they find themselves hungry and provide resources in abundance. When else did we find that? Moses, he divides the people up in the wilderness, and what does God do? He supernaturally gives them bread from heaven called manna. What is it is literally what what it translates as. And we've seen God do this again, Elijah in a time of famine, a hundred men on the verge of dying fed with, what, 20 loaves of barley, and they ate until everybody was satisfied in the midst of a famine. I think the disciples in this situation of scarcity are starting to see the abundance that might be coming their way. Because one greater than Moses they are starting to see. One greater than Elijah is in their midst. And so what does Jesus say to them? After they tell him, look, all we've got is five loaves and two fish, he says, look, bring them to me. Bring them to me. And in an act of faith, the disciples indeed do that. They bring these, these, the, the bread and the fish to Jesus. They see their inadequacies, they bring them to Jesus. And in their scarcity, they're finding again afresh his abundance. You see, the disciples have known Jesus, and they may not have needed healing in this particular moment, but they are learning that if they want to properly serve Jesus in the same way that it's it, uh, the, In the same way that by following Jesus, we have to know our scarcity, so also they are learning that they have to come to terms with their inadequacy if they're ever going to properly serve him as people of his kingdom. Listen, what am I, what am I trying to say? I feel I bumbled my words there. What am I trying to say? I'm trying to say this, and hear me clearly. Jesus is never limited by your inadequacies, never. He is never limited by your inadequacies. You know Jesus could have just heard them griping and complaining and their concern and their doubt and he could have just made bread rain down from heaven he's capable of doing extraordinary things but what does he want them to do he wants them to bring their inadequacies to him give them to him that he might bless them in the midst of their inadequacies and they might experience God's power see God's power work in and through them Listen, if you want to see God's power at work in your life, you must know where your power stops. You must know where your power reaches its end. It's not your weakness. It's not your inadequacy that is hindering God from working in power in your life and in our world through you. It's not because you're weak and it's not because you're inadequate. It's your delusions of strength which are hindering you from tasting of God's power. God has always worked this way. Was not a nation saved through a brother being sold to slavery, eventually traded by slave traders to protect a people during a famine in Egypt? Was not a giant slain by a young boy playing with his slingshot? God always wins through weaknesses. He always is willing to take the bet with the worst odds, and he always wins. And the disciples are learning that Jesus is capable and that there is a never, never a moment in the Christian life. What gets you into the Christian life is you realize your desperation, and what sustains you in the Christian life, which makes you a servant in, the Christian, in, in Christ's kingdom, is that you are completely and always reliant on him at all times. The disciples bring to him their resources. He sends them out with baskets. They start to feel the basket getting lighter and lighter, and they think, man, we're only in row four. What are we going to do? And yet the, the, the food continues to come. By faith, they continue to hand out the food and hand out the food, and they continue in the midst of their inadequacy, in the midst of their, fa- their, their lacking. They find God's abundance. Listen, maybe if I could speak directly to our church about this. If you're here visiting our church or you're not a believer, we're honored you're here, and we think you should wrestle through the claims of Jesus. But I want to speak specifically to our church, family. And as I was thinking about what we would do if we were in the situation of 5,000 people showing up and needing to feed them, my guess is our church would immediately put together some kind of committee. And a dietitian and a doctor would be calculating the minimum number of calories needed to sustain people to get them to the closest village. And we would have somebody overseeing a logistics team. And we'd have someone else doing a little bit of research and investigation of maybe if there's any wild things we could forage for. And we would have a pretty good plan of how we're going to try to feed 5,000 people. And I'm not knocking on that. Jesus is saying, bring what you've got to me. But he's also saying, you've got to learn, realize there's inadequacies in what you've got. There, there's something lacking in what you've got. There's a scarcity in your resources. Christ Church Toronto, we have incredible potential. There's incredible brain power in this in this church community. There's incredible gifts. There's incredible gifts. But you wanna know what my biggest fear is? That we continue to only do things which seem manageable to us. We we realize Jesus has called us to share the good news of what he has done for us on the cross with our neighbors, and to be a part of of renewing the city and being a part of seeing churches planted all over the city, all over the suburbs, to be a part of seeing his kingdom spread all throughout Canada and really throughout all the world. And my fear is this, that we, we, we calculate what's manageable and what's reasonable for our particular community with the resources we have, and we're able to pull it off and we're able to do good things for the kingdom and our church continues to grow and things look like they're going well, but we don't learn what it feels like to eat When you thought you had nothing and to feel so full we don't know what it feels like to take extraordinary risks for jesus to say this is impossible unless god's spirit blesses it and to find that indeed he does bless it with our best of efforts and to eat and eat and eat and be deeply satisfied whatever the future of our church holds we have a measure of stability we didn't have before we have a measure of maturity we never had before let us not grow comfortable managing risk Let's continue to do extraordinary things for the Lord and beg and ask that his spirit might bless them, that in our inadequacies we might feel his abundance again and again and again. It'd be a good time if I said we were like buying a building or something, but maybe the Lord will answer that prayer. No agenda. I'm just saying straight up. This is a very, very serious concern, though, for me, as it goes to our future. Let's not settle for constant calculated risks. Let's do things for the sake of Christ, and unless he blesses them, they will not succeed. For some of you, that's a small step of telling your coworker, or the friends you play sports with or your neighbor next door that you go to church and inviting them to church. For those of us, that's going to be redoing our budget and thinking about spending extraordinary money to see this kingdom of Jesus Christ blessed by churches spread throughout, really, the city and throughout the world. There's nothing more joyful than being at the end of yourself, seeing your inadequacies, and seeing the Lord's abundance poured into your life. You've got to learn to eat and be satisfied this way. This is the scarcity and the abundance that the disciples receive. Now let's talk about the scarcity and abundance of Jesus. Now it's interesting. Jesus is fully human and he experiences some kind of scarcity. He's exhausted. He's grieving. That's why he goes away. And yet as they bring the resources to him, what does he do? He takes bread. He looks to heaven and he blesses it. He breaks it and he gives it. Takes, blesses, breaks, gives. Takes, blesses, breaks, gives. These are verbs that are going to be incredibly, incredibly important. Where else do we see Jesus taking bread, looking to heaven and offering a blessing, breaking, and giving to his disciples? Well, the next place we're going to see it is in chapter 19, where these same four verbs are going to come up, and Jesus is going to take bread. He's going to bless it. He's going to break it. and He's going to give it to his disciples. And what is he going to say? He's going to say this. I know it looks like bread. And in many ways it is bread, but this is my body, and it's for you. Now what's going on here? What Matthew is doing for us in this meal, and there's a reason all four Gospels record this particular feeding, is he's telling us that Jesus is not only providing bread for the people, but he's giving us a hint that he himself is the true bread. He is the meal with which people will eat and be satisfied and there will be leftovers. He is the food with which you eat and you're nourished deep down. Listen, maybe I'll, I'll try to explain it this way. How does food work? Generally, how does food work? You know, with the, if you're a dietitian, forgive me, just close your ears for a while, but with the exception of maybe yogurt, it seems to me that the way food works is something has to die, and what is contained, the, the life that's left in that thing, whether that be meat or vegetarians, you know, your broccoli, Whatever ways in which they absorbed the sunlight and they took oxygen and the ways in which they harnessed these sort of nutrients, these things become means by which life is extended to us. As food comes inside of us, something gave its life so that our life is extended. Is that not how food works? It's fairly straightforward. Something has to die that our life can be extended. It's no different for a steak than it is for a potato. And what Jesus is saying here, and what he is saying is, is this. That food, food is pointing to something greater. That we need something to be the means by which life comes inside of us and sustains us. And food is just, in one sense, it's just a signpost of a greater thing that is to come that will sustain us. So that the life of heaven, the divine life, can come inside of us again. And that it can course through our veins. And we can live and live abundantly. What are we learning here? Jesus is absolutely exhausted, but we're learning that he also contains in and of himself an amazing abundance. And that's how this bread can miraculously continue to come and and, and fill every stomach. Jesus is pointing to a meal that's coming beyond the meal. A meal which the true bread is distributed to all of us. The means by which God's divine life transfers into his people. And the way in which that meal is going to come to us, we learn, is that Jesus is going to have to embrace a degree of scarcity that right now would be shocking for the disciples to understand at this point in the story. He is going to have to be the one who goes to the cross. He is going to be the one who has to give of himself. He is going to be the one that has to be broken. He's going to have to give of his life, sacrifice himself as the means by which that which food was always pointing to finally comes to you and it comes to me. He's going to have to give his life and become for us the bread of heaven which comes into us and the way we will eat and feast on this bread of heaven, starts by faith, by trusting that Christ's life is what we need to sustain ourselves, that his death covers the debts of our life, that his death is a substitute for the death we deserve. And in the same way Moses led God's people out of slavery and into this land of milk and honey, so also Jesus is leading us out of a slavery to sin. And decay and death, and he's leading us into a world flowing with something greater than milk and honey, the bread of heaven, where divine life courses through our veins, and we eat and eat, and we're always satisfied, and we fear death no more. Jesus embraced scarcity on the cross. He made himself nothing, gave of his life, and by being that sacrifice in the same way food gives of their life, he provided the means by which divine life can now come to you, and you can, in a sense, be born again, experience life unending even today, maybe for the first time. The way we eat this feast is by faith, by taking him at his word. When he said he died for those who believe, who trust, who put their hope in him, by holding and clinging on to this, we eat and nourish this truth in our, in our, in our souls and in our minds in such a way that, that life unending starts to come inside of us. And in the path of our discipleship, we continue to eat by coming to a table just like this, where you're going to come forward and you're going to hear somebody say, this is my body. It's not the person who serves you's body, I assure you of that. As surely as Jesus said that to those disciples, he says it to you in a mysterious way. The same miraculous work of God begins to take place here at this table. Listen, what am I trying to say? I'm trying to say this now what it means to follow christ or really to have the divine power of god into your life something that i think many of us are craving we're looking for in all the wrong places it starts by admitting that you have a hunger that just can't be satisfied it starts by admitting that you have a deep need for something that that you have something that is lacking you have to admit that you are lost if you're ever going to be found and yet also you have to acknowledge and with rejoicing not just that you're hungry but that the food is available and you have to take him at his word and bring it inside of you and trust and believe and lay hold on to this. And this is what it means to follow after Christ and the path of obeying Christ as his disciples is paved with the exact same meal, knowing your inadequacy and in the midst of your inadequacy, in the midst of your scarcity, finding the abundance of Christ. This is the hope of our gospel. Let me pray. Our Lord, we give you great thanks that you use tangible objects for stubborn people like us. Things like bread and wine so that even, even the dullest of us can understand how food works. And you, and you tell us that that's just a picture of what you're doing for us. That in Jesus Christ, as your son took on a body and made himself nothing on the cross and gave of his life as a sacrifice, you are providing the means by which life unending can be experienced and found and then you give your church a meal to celebrate, to feast on, so that we might march forward with joy and in the midst of our inadequacy serve this great city with all of our might knowing that where we reach the end of our abilities we're going to find your abundance poured fresh into us father work powerfully through this your church continue father to shower your abundance upon us and now as we think of going to this table work powerfully through this bread in a unique way this morning in this wine we ask in christ's name amen Thank you for listening to the Christchurch Toronto Podcast. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at ChristchurchToronto.ca or email us at info at ChristchurchToronto.ca.